Greetings from the Mountain Mama. My name is McKenna. And hey, it's Galen. And you're listening to Living Lore. This month, we'll be discussing a tragic event that happened one Christmas Eve in Fayetteville, West Virginia. The disappearance of the soccer children. First of all, Merry Christmas Eve, Galen. Merry Christmas Eve, McKenna. (laughs) And a happy holiday to all of our listeners. Are you ready to talk about some sinister happenings that occurred on this date nearly 80 years ago? I was born ready. (laughs) (laughs) Not 80 years ago, but I was born ready. I love that you had to specify that. (laughs) Yes, I am not 80 years old, surprisingly. I I might be. I am in my bones. (laughs) In the year 1945, George and Jenny Sauter were fairly settled in life. Known as a respectable, successful couple, the pair ran a small trucking company in Fayetteville, West Virginia. George and Jenny and their 10 children lived in a small two-story home a couple of miles from the town center. The family was well-liked and in good standing. Not the type of family you expect to be involved in such a tragedy. But before we get into that, let's talk a little about George and Jenny. Janine, who went by Jenny, Gibriani grew up in Smithers, West Virginia. She worked at her father's store in town, and George routinely came by the shop on his trucking route. He met Jenny when he was in his mid-twenties. They were both born in Italy and immigrated as children, he at 13 and she as a toddler. They married in 1923, and over the next 20 years, they would have 10 children. George went from hauling jobs to owning a successful trucking company by the time he was middle-aged. Just a few weeks after World War II, and peace was declared across the globe, an inexplicable and violent tragedy tore their lives apart. The night was December 24th. The Sauter family was preparing for Christmas. The house was full with nine kids and two adults sheltering on an unusually cold and windy midwinter night. One of their sons, 21-year-old Joe, joined the fight in World War II, and although the war had ended a few weeks before, he was still on active duty. The younger children were allowed to stay up later than usual on Christmas Eve. Among them were five-year-old Betty, eight-year-old Jenny, and Martha, who was 12. Before heading off to bed with her husband and three-year-old Sylvia, Jenny Sauter reminded her older children to do their chores before going to bed. Louis, nine, and Maurice, 14, were to put the chickens away and feed the cows before they went to bed. Leaving the children to stay up late, the Sauter parents went to bed around 10.30 p.m. Two hours later, Jenny was jolted awake by a phone call. She stumbled downstairs to the phone, and upon answering it, found someone had dialed their number by mistake. It was at this time Jenny noticed the curtains were closed and the lights were still on, a job usually done by one of the children. Marion was asleep on the couch downstairs, and the others, she believed, were asleep in their attic rooms. She made sure the house was shut and turned off the lights before going back to her room. Jenny was asleep for only a moment before hearing an odd sound on the roof. Whatever it was rolled off and hit the ground, but she paid it no attention. It could have been a tree branch or settling snow. Santa? Santa? It's Christmas Eve. I, I mean... I mean, I... I, I mean, I guess because she's an adult. She, she was like, not Santa. <laughs> Santa? 30 minutes later, she hadn't quite fallen asleep when she smelled smoke. According to historicmysteries.com, Jenny ran to the bottom of the attic stairs calling for her children. John and George Jr. came down, their hair singed. Jenny described calling for the rest of her kids up in the attic, but never got a response. When the smoke and flames overwhelmed her, she was forced to flee outside. Teenager Marion was already downstairs and had Sylvia in her arms. At this point, only two adults and four children had exited the house. The Sauters tried desperately to get to their children left in the burning home. In the yard, George first turned to the ladder that always rested against the side of the house for quick access to any repairs. It was gone. 
George wanted to drive one of his work trucks next to the building so he could get to the upper floor, but neither truck would start. Marion had tried the phone before she exited the house, but oddly, it didn't work. She then ran to a neighbor's place to make the emergency call, but no operator would answer. In the end, the neighbor drove directly to the fire chief's house. The fire burned for anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes, destroying most of the house. The Sauters never saw five of their children again. The fire was a major event in such a small town, and yet it was barely investigated. Which makes me wonder, was the fault with the fire department, or was the fire involved in a conspiracy? Conspiracy. Your favorite thing, can I? <laughs> Local authorities did not believe it was arson and actually weren't even interested in finding out what happened, despite the Sauter family's pleas. Their lack of motivation to investigate could have been seen as indifference, but given the gravity of the crime, five children dead or missing, it's definitely suspicious that neither the fire department nor local police saw a reason to investigate. West Virginia State Police initially ruled that the fire was caused by faulty wiring. And this didn't change even when George and Jenny Sauter brought them evidence that their children's bodies were unaccounted. No bones were found in the ashes of their former home. Later, George bulldozed new dirt into the basement to cover up the scene. The fire inspector stuck by the faulty wiring story, but it was later discovered by a telephone repairman that the wires to the house were cut, not burned. This did lead to the arrest of a man for this, but it didn't amount to much. The man told police he meant to cut the electrical wires, but made a mistake and no follow-up about the man's motive ever occurred. The fact that this man literally cut someone's telephone lines and they just let him go is crazy. Like, was he a repairman? Was he just cutting wires? Who knows? I don't know. Like, oh, what a what a beautiful Christmas Eve. Let me just go snip snip on some telephone wires and cause havoc. Huh. It's great. <laughs> I'm the Santa Claus of electricity. I couldn't find a mention of him in any of my other research. Either way, George came to the conclusion that the crashing noise on the roof was most likely the explanation for the fire. Whatever made the noise was probably a pineapple bomb, common enough because they were used in warfare. And what, pray tell, is a pineapple bomb? I'm so glad you asked because I had to look it up. A pineapple bomb is an American-made fragmentation grenade. It was the long-range weapon of Al Capone's gang. And also is the name of a cocktail, but I don't think that matters here. <laughs> Let's focus on the fact that it was most commonly used by a gang. What? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, gang violence? I, I mean... Uh, that's strange. As the parents of the Sauter family began to reflect on the events before the fire, George realized that there was a motive to go after him. Fayetteville, West Virginia had a large and vibrant Italian-American community, and personal opinions about the war and Mussolini sometimes caused heated arguments. George Sauter despised Mussolini and wasn't shy about sharing his opinion. George figured it may have been the reason his family was targeted, but honestly, it kind of seems like a stretch. It's true that in the months leading up to this tragedy, the Italian dictator was assassinated and the Allies declared victory. This could have made sympathizers in the Italian community of Fayetteville bitter, but was it really enough of a reason to set someone's house on fire? Let's look at the events leading up to the tragedy. The first unusual event happened two months before the fire when a man came to the Sauter home inquiring about work. Even after he was told there was none, the stranger walked to the back of the house and pointed at two fuse boxes saying, this is going to cause a fire someday. <laughs> George immediately had the power company come out to inspect the fuse boxes. He was told they were in excellent condition and not a safety concern, despite what the stranger had said. Just a few weeks before the fire, another man showed up at the house, 
wanting to sell Jordan and Jenny life insurance. When they said no, he made a strangely threatening remark saying the house would go up in smoke and your children will be destroyed. The man told George, you are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. As any life insurance agent says. You don't want a life insurance? Your house is going to go up in smoke. Uh, but I just want to point this out. You know, as, as a once life insurance agent for the you know three short months that I was, you can't do that. No. I don't think he was actually a life no, insurance But he's putting a bad rap, okay? Yeah. You gotta work hard. You gotta take lots of tests. Oh my god. <laughs> the final conversation happened when the phone rang in the Sauter home just after midnight on Christmas and Jenny answered. She heard a voice she didn't recognize asking for a woman who didn't live there. Jenny caught the sounds of a party in the background and told the lady she had the wrong number, then went to bed. Half an hour later, as she began to fall asleep, she heard a sound on the roof. What could have been a coincidence, a fluke call, might have saved six lives that night. A lot of this is unusual and or creepy, but do you want to know what's really strange? Oh, do tell. The Sauter sons actually saw a man in the car watching their younger siblings from US Highway 21 as they filed home from school one afternoon a few days before Christmas. And no one thought to mention this? <laughs> that didn't seem strange? Obviously, they noticed, but it wasn't until after the fire, when the family sat down to talk about how to solve the crime, that they spoke up about it. I love how this family has just gone through this terrible tragedy, and since the police aren't helping, they're just like, we're gonna have a group meeting and figure out who did this to us. I mean, like, go I them. Like, right? Right. I like them. <laughs> George and Jenny, and the other surviving children, John, 23, Marion, 17, George, 16, and Sylvia, 3, would spend the rest of their lives conducting their own sleuthing. First off, we need to talk about the most bizarre aspect of the arson, the lack of response by authorities, especially the fire department. Although the fire chief had an inefficient way of raising the alarm, basically all the men called each other to show up, starting with the chief, the fire began at 1 a.m. and the fire department didn't show up until 8 a.m. What the heck? Exactly how far away were they? In Kansas? <laughs> like, did they, did they have to fly? There on Santa's sleigh? No. <laughs> they were only located 2.5 miles away from the Sauter home. I could have ran there faster than that. And get this, Chief F.J. Morris reported the reason behind the delay in reaching the Sauter family was he didn't know how to drive the fire truck. He'd been chief for eight years. He didn't know how to drive the fire truck? That is the dumbest excuse I have ever heard in my life. And I have heard a lot of dumb excuses. <laughs> I worked in retail. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that makes me so angry. I know. How? How? Is that not part of your training? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think you would have to know. Right? To be the chief. Right? Just because Fayetteville's a small town doesn't mean they don't. Regardless, yeah. your your call of duty is to save. You still have to. You could have figured something out. I don't care if you have to ride a unicycle. Yeah. You get there. Yeah. And, and the ladder George normally kept against his house, it was found in the ditch across the road the next day. Of course it was. <laughs> of course. Because, well, of course, that just makes perfect sense. A few days after the fire, the medical examiner arranged an official inquest. George observed that one of the jurors on the panel was the same man who told him, your children will be destroyed. What is happening? What is going on in Fayetteville in 1945? Honestly. <laughs> Conspiracies. <laughs> That's what. I would like, I would like to know. I'm starting to believe you. I am telling you. It's the only thing. That makes sense. It's really, like, there's no explanation for it besides that there was some kind of conspiracy happening. But that reminds me. So they explained that the fire was due to faulty wiring, right? Mm-hmm. But 
Jenny noticed all the lights on and in working order before she went to sleep. There is no way it could have been a wiring issue. You're right. And George had just recently replaced old wiring to install a new stove. There's no indication that anything was wrong with the electrical system. So, what happened to the children? Evidence suggests the children who disappeared might have actually lived through the fire. The blaze went out within 45 minutes with no help from the fire department, and no bone fragments or teeth were recovered. But what could have become of them? Despite the fact that they could have survived, just as the new year of 1946 arrived, the local coroner issued death certificates for five of the Sodom children. If they had survived, what prevented them from getting in touch with their parents over the next quarter of a century? The only reasonable answer is they didn't know how or were too frightened to act. It's likely the kidnappers entered the house before the fire and took as many as they could, but possibly the individual, or individuals, set the fire, then posed as rescuers, taking five children out the front door and shutting them off in darkness inside a vehicle. If the children were taken, the kidnappers may have told Betty, Jenny, Martha, Louis, and Maurice that their parents and siblings were dead, their home a pile of ashes. Given the violent nature of the crime, the perpetrators would use every means of intimidation available to keep the children away from their parents, likely transporting them far away and splitting them apart by adopting them into separate families. After the fire, multiple people reported having seen the Sauter children. They couldn't be hard to miss. Five children with dark hair and dark eyes being transported in a group. Credible sightings were reported by a hotel concierge who said she checked them in, along with two men and two women of Italian heritage, at her hotel the same night. Five different reports also came from people who saw the children in Cortez, Florida. And in 1968, Jenny received a photograph in the mail from Kentucky. Jenny's envelope contained a photograph of a handsome man with dark hair and dark eyes. On the reverse side of the photo were the handwritten words, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, Roll boys, I don't I don't know what that means. A90132 or 35. What? I don't know. What? I don't know what it means. What? Uh, this is gibberish. It is gibberish. Lil with two two L's and I, I and a little boys? It doesn't make any sense. Or 35. It literally said or 35. Or 35. This big sequence of numbers. Yeah. Or 35. <laughs> or 35. <laughs> I don't know. Who's Frankie? I don't know. They didn't have a brother named Frankie. As you can probably guess, the message wasn't helpful. Uh. But the Sodders hired a detective to track down the lead in Kentucky anyways. Unfortunately, they never heard from the man again. Another lead, another mystery, a last tantalizing clue that many believed was a cool prank. Nonetheless, they added the updated photo to a billboard they'd created for their missing children and maintained for more than 20 years. The Sodders continued to live in Fayetteville. Jenny still wore black as she had since 1945. She planted flowers across the street from her home in memory of her five lost children. She and George never stopped the search, putting out reward money and spending the equivalent of $250,000 over the years. In 1969, George Sauter died, no closer to solving the mystery than the night it happened, nearly 25 years before. Jenny lived another 20 years before sadly passing as well, still believing her children were out there somewhere. She was quoted as saying, you can't tell me five children would burn up in a little old house like that and something wouldn't be left. No, I'll never believe it. There is little doubt the Sauter home was set aflame that Christmas Eve, but the bigger mystery is what happened to the five of the Sauter children. Local authorities wanted George and Jenny to let the matter go, concluding they died in the fire. But the Sauters knew better. Jenny and George spent the rest of their lives trying to find Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty. After their mother's death in 1989, the family finally took the weathered, worn billboard of their missing siblings down. The surviving Sauter children, joined by their own children, continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. On April 21, 2021, 
Sylvia Sauter, 79, passed away after a long illness. She lived in West Virginia and raised her own family while searching for her lost siblings her entire life, a search that might never have an answer even 80 years later. And to this day, it remains a mystery. Thank you for listening to Living Lore, a production of The Scenic Route, sponsored by Loot Press. If you like what you hear, please remember to like and share on Spotify or your favorite podcast provider. Or you can check out our Twitter or send us your own spooky story at livinglorewv and livinglorewv at gmail.com, respectively. Happy holidays, and we'll see you next month for another spine-chilling tale, The Legend of Screaming Jenny. Not to be confused with my aunt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Jenny, and I'm sure has screamed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is a completely different journey. <laughs>